Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Andrew Harrison. On today's show, don't say we never look in the mirror on this podcast, there's a corruption scandal brewing at the heart of the European Parliament. Plus, in the UK, we're in the grip of industrial action from mail, rail and NHS staff, with the army being drafted in to drive ambulances. Plus, where have all the working class artists gone? New statistics say that they've halved in 50 years. And in our extra bit for Patreon backers, we wrestle with the horror that is buying Christmas presents. Stock up on Doritos, cheese footballs and John Stewart mill books. We've got you a list to see you through December. So let's meet today's panel. First up, it's commentator Alex Andreo. Hi, Alex. Hello, Andrew. So Rishi Sunak reactivated the hostile environment stuff this week uh, with his five-point plan, including criminalising and then removing people who claim asylum after travelling to the UK by small boats, and a deal to send Albanian migrants back to Albania, and apparently he's going to abolish a backlog of 100,000 asylum claims. This has all coincided with this absolutely horrific drowning incident in the channel. Four people have died, about 40 people were rescued. What kind of treatment would those people get under these rules that are proposed? Sir Edward Lee said the quiet bit out loud, and I thought that was quite interesting. He said, I'm not in favour of more safe and legal routes, because with 100 million displaced people in the world, it's a policy that leads nowhere. And I think that's the unspoken bit of yeah. this whole debate. That figure is bullshit, by the way. It includes internally displaced people, Palestinians, you know, mm. it includes all kinds of people. Still doesn't get you to 100 million. The UNHCR recognizes about 21 million refugees, but that's still a huge number. And the argument is one that I think dominates conservative thinking across the Western world. So the truth is, I think the UK is trying to basically abrogate its responsibility to the world for the effects of um, instability, of wars, of climate change, in which, by the way, we have had a starring role yeah. for a century. And if we're honest, most developed countries are trying to do exactly the same. Fortress Europe ha has been a, a concept that's been banded around for a long time now. The difference, I think, is that because of the UK's geographic position and because of the intensity with which we're pursuing this stupid isolationism. So we don't take our fair share even by the very limited Western standards, which means that our allies and friends and partners have to pick up the slack for us. And that's what makes the situation very contentious across, across Europe. And we squabble like this 
instead of maybe collectively putting the money we put into guarding our borders, into making sure those people are not made to flee their homes in the first place, which would seem to me the sensible policy, because nobody wants to leave a safe um, home to get on a dinghy mm. with the English channel in sub-zero temperatures. This shouldn't even fucking need articulating. That nobody wants to do that. You have to eliminate the reasons that force them to do that. It's not rocket science. It's just become incredibly toxic. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what do you think those evil criminal gangs that we hear about, what do you think they were telling their victims yesterday? Because I think they were telling them Give me an extra grand. You need to get on a boat tonight because they're changing the law. This performative cruelty of successive governments will not bust their business model. It's a part of it. Yeah. It's an integral motivation for people paying to cross the channel. I have a horrible feeling we will be returning to this a lot uh, in the next year. Also with us is Hannah Fern, a columnist at The Independent. Hi, Hannah. Hi there. Uh, so there's a row on between Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting and the BMA. He says they've labelled him a heretic for suggesting that they're hostile to NHS reforms. It, why is he picking a fight when Labour's relationship with the unions is already kind of in the spotlight? This is a really strange one. I can't understand his motivation at all. I think some of the things he's saying are absolutely, actually absolutely right. Um, but uh, the way he's choosing to express himself is utterly bizarre. He's picking a fight with the people that, um, considering the state the NHS is in, the public are roundly behind. We've seen from the kind of uh, level of support for the potential nurses strike. People feel really strongly about this. Uh, and also we're in a situation where Labour, uh, you know, in the polls are doing fine. He doesn't need to kind of fight on this right-wing territory. Um, it, it, it's really strange. Some of the things that he's saying around, you know, the need for kind of wholesale reform and a new deal with doctor's contracts requiring more than just a pay settlement, I think is right. If you look at um, some of the issues around, you know, people who are not attending doctor's appointments, they're not doing that because they are choosing to kind of let the NHS down. There's clearly problems with the admin. There's problem with access points. Of course, there's problem with GP funding. Um, it's, a, it's a massive project. But to speak about it in these kind of really reductionist terms, it, it, I can't understand what he's thinking. And it also has put him at odds with his own party as well. So why create this fight? I, uh, whoever's advising him, I hope, is calling on him to roll back pretty quickly. Yeah. I'm completing the panel. It's Ian Dunst, co-host of Origin Story an author of the upcoming blockbuster, How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. Hi, Ian. How are you defining blockbuster, exactly? <laughs> it's made a... You could make a block out of it, then you could... <laughs> <laughs> like, like Boris Johnson and his kind of bulldozer thing. You could do that. Right. So that's kind of a blockbuster. Cheap and pernicious. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I have a question for you. The UK Statistics Authority has just told the Tories off uh, for sharing a dodgy infographic which claims the UK has completed 70 trade deals since Brexit and they're worth £800 billion. Um, the uh, Statistics Authority said this would imply that there have been no trade with these countries before the deals and there will be none now without none without them either. So it's like this or no trade at all. How uh, Are they going to be able to stand by this kind of crazy bullshit for much longer, do you think? <sighs> Listeners, Ian has his head in his hands <laughs> <laughs> again. Um, well, look, they're, they're going to try, but it's not doing them a lot of good, is it? Because I mean, even you know, even if you look at the interviews that they're getting on the BBC, on the Today program, on LBC, on sort of places that, if you remember, sort of two, three years ago, we'd be sat there just being like, "Fucking hell!" 
when will they be asked the tough, the actual questions about mm. this? Well, they actually are asked those questions all the time. Now. There's like a real deep set sort of public sense of we're getting shafted on trade. That drip feed of stories of sort of, you know, trying to send sort of fish over or agricultural products over have really sort of kicked in. So, I mean, they're going to keep on saying it with less and less conviction, but the public sense is pretty set. And it does help as well, I think, that you have someone like, you know, Hunter's Chancellor, because he kind of can't conceal his obvious sympathy with the question. Mm. So there'll be like, <laughs> like Bre- Brexit isn't the root cause of our problems. They're like, yeah. is it a cause? <laughs> and then there's like, a sort of deafening silence from him. But then he does that kind of Morse code blinking. It's like, yes, it is the root cause. Help, help. my location is, through the window I can see a budgie, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's very, very hard to stand up. It's Christmas, so let's start off with people who've got their noses in the manger. Last week, Belgian police searched over a dozen homes in Brussels over what has been described as illicit lobbying activities by a Gulf state. Sources say it's Qatar. Arrests include the wife and daughter of former Italian MP Pierre Antonio Panzeri. And the biggest fish was EU Vice President Eva Kaili. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> we, we had a little training session just, be, yeah. just before we started recording listeners. <laughs> Down on the E. Yes. That's what we've learned here. EU President Eva Kelly. Nice. There we go. She'd praised Qatar's inspirational reforms ahead of the World Cup. Closer to home, the Sunday Times have published their PPE rich list, collating information on who made out very well from the pandemic. It included a couple whose firm won £2 billion in PPE deals, the most of the entire pandemic. Sarah and Richard Stout bought a £6 million pound mansion at a 30 million pound caribbean villa and then took the firm to jersey solely to preserve their privacy alex let's start with these eu raids uh, the president of the european parliament has warned that european democracy is under attack because of meddling from qatar how serious is this well, i mean it's very serious it's you know it's buying politicians it doesn't get more serious than that i'm pleased at the reaction it has been instant and very very decisive um, they've been thrown out of every sort of aspect of the job that they were doing. Absolutely no one is trying to defend them. <laughs> Compare and contrast. <laughs> you know, over here, they'd be trying to change the rules retrospectively to make it okay <laughs> to take suitcases full of euros. But I digress. It's, I mean, it's an incredibly serious um, thing going on. So Eva Kelly, I'm going to keep saying it because now I know how to say it. She's been stripped of her EU vice presidential role. Her assets have been frozen. She's been charged. Who is she? Kelly used to be a TV presenter, um, is a bit of a shyster and a bit of a smooth operator all at the same time. Um, she is quite principle-less in terms of her politics. And in fact, the very, very funny domestic aspect of this is that she had been in open warfare with the leader of the center-left party in Greece, PASOK, um, because she had defended the government over the Greek Watergate, so-called. Mm-hmm. You know, they've, this is their monitoring. They were caught bugging basically everyone, including their own ministers, the leader of the opposition, <laughs> and stuff like that. So that massive scandal was going on, and she was about to jump ship and stand for the centre-right party at the next election, mm. New Democracy. And then this happened. So now the two centre-left and centre-right parties are fighting about 
to whom she doesn't belong. <laughs> she's one of yours. No, she's one of yours. Absolutely hilarious and degrading to watch <laughs> and has huge implications for the upcoming election, by the way. Mm. My favourite fact about her was she claimed that her grandfather had been assassinated by communists. She just totally made it up. Yeah. Just like, yeah. Was... Oh, she has a history of just making shit up, which is not not unheard of in, in Greek politics. But but like I said, the the serious aspect of it is that, you know, these are the two parties that either individually or latterly in grand coalition for 20 years absolutely destroyed Greece with their corruption and venality. And then they give themselves a makeover and we send them to Europe. And what do they import? <laughs> corruption and venality. I mean, suitcases full of euros could not be more Greek as a news item. <laughs> I mean, you would have thought that the... There being some kind of like you know, PayPal or something. It's yeah. much more modern. I don't know. Ian. Tsipras uh, of Syriza must be rubbing his hands with glee. No doubt. Ian, um, surely this story is going to be catnip for the uh, the failing EU is a nest of corruption. We're glad to be out of it, gang. But, you know, private eyes always pointed out the EU is terrible for certifying its accounts. Does the EU, uh, you know, the EU institutions at a wider level have a problem with corruption? I think it's quite unlikely that they're going to find much among the MEPs and there's relatively little concern around that at the moment as an institution. It's a problem that they were able to do this without needing to register the fact that there had been contact. Like, that is that is a massive issue. Yeah. So this is like, the, just for, for clarity for the listeners, like, there is not a register as there is here uh, in the British Parliament where you've got to detail who you've met and why. Yes. However, let's also remember that registers don't, I mean, you should have a register. Mm. Registers do not fix everything, right? Mm. So, I mean, there's a story, that, you know, this morning in Politico, about 260,000 being spent by Qatar taking out British MPs. And this is done basically through the all-party group system. The all-party group system is just a fucking mess waiting to explode. It, and it's been for about five years now. Whenever you're in the Red Lion pub, it's always like, obviously the next scandal is the all-party groups. Everyone knows. And it's, and it's the, the <laughs> national ones, right? You know, it's like, oh, suddenly look at, he's so fucking interested in Peru. Who knew that this <laughs> MP? Always the country ones, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, some, oh, some yeah, of the you know, individuals involved. Yeah, great. Paddington, come on. It's like very now. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not you're inviting right. you to do a list of interesting shit about Peru. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean is, it's like, oh, and all of a sudden, there's an interest in this country because you're getting a very nice jolly. Now, all of that is registered. So, look, I mean, a register will not fix everything on and of, in and of itself, but of course you should have it there as a starter. Mm. For veteran Romaniacs like us, the mantra was always stay in the EU, EU so we can reform it and make it better. Um, what sort of reform does it need that we would be doing if it was still there? Or is it reformable, do you think? I mean, I know you, get, you get the kind of GB news line that this thing is a sinking ship. It's Those questions are really hard to answer at the moment because we're in very early stages. And if you look at any of the coverage of this, it's basically a division between people doing the classic thing of it's a bunch of bad apples. Literally saying, by the way, it's a bunch of bad apples. You just think basics of PR is don't literally say it's bad apples. As soon as you <laughs> yeah. say it, everyone's like, oh, you guys are fucked. It's, it's a complete mess over there. <laughs> Nevertheless, there are very cogent reasons to say that. And some of the people I spoke to earlier today on DM in, the, you know, in Europe are sort of going, no, it probably isn't as big a deal. We don't know the exact size of it right now. There are others. If you look at the stuff that Transparency International is putting out, being like the basic slots are not there. You want protections, for instance, about revolving doors and the rules around revolving mm -hmm. doors just are, really aren't there and the registers just aren't really aren't there. So I think it's better for us to take a couple of weeks and see what goes on before we start coming to conclusions about just how deep that a, a rot is. A tiny football ad addendum, because I don't think that we should allow this to go unsaid. Mm. UEFA 
in FIFA that are the absolute wasps' nests of funneling money from various suspect states, actually professional sport in general. We know what happened in, in the Grand Prix. And of course that will begin to infect our politics. It's those organizations that are completely opaque. Yeah. I mean, people becoming an MP to get football tickets. Let's face it, it's the only way you can get them these days. How <laughs> um, I want to move on to this uh, PPE rich list. I mean, I've always hated the Sunday Times rich list. I just like read it and go like, Stop. until this one. Un- yeah, until this one. <laughs> well, yeah, I used to say, oh, here's a list of rich people. Aren't they amazing? And isn't it brilliant? You've got rich people. I was just like, no, I hate you. And then the PPE list comes. Uh, PPE rich list comes out. And go, this is a public service. Right. So um, you know they've kept the Michelle Moan pot boiling in no, in no uh, uncertain terms, setting out the companies which profited the most of the pandemic and also the ones that wasted the most um the amount of unusable ppe ranges from like 11 grand's worth to 179 million pounds worth in the case of uniserve which sounds like a kind of made-up company that would be in an episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> so many of them have got names like yeah, that. If you look at the list, yeah, you can tell the yeah. ones which were legitimate companies beforehand and tried to get involved, yeah. and you can tell the ones that have just been knocked together. Make at a the company last quickly. Minute. Call it <laughs> Super <laughs> Medical Mega Limited. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah, Unisurf sounds like an early internet provider. Yes, it does. Yeah, it's, does. On, it's on dial-up. Yeah. Uh, so, what have we learned from the PPE rich list that is new? So I guess what we've learned is two things. One is how much of all of this, these kind of contracts being awarded with very little scrutiny, was due to chance meetings between individuals who happened to know each other through family connections, somebody's brother-in-law who met at a party or a drinks. Um, Really such a window on how... So, I guess corrupt in terms of the kind of um, the class system in this country we've become. If you're part of that political class, suddenly you might find yourself able to pivot your entire small business, which previously maybe had a turnover of 1.8 million, into this multi-billion-pound <laughs> organisation importing products you've had no previous history in handling okay. across the world. It's quite astonishing. This is the infamous pub landlord, isn't it? Was that yeah, Matt Hancock? Uh, no, there's a few of them. Well, if you read the list, them. it's not there's just one. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that really shocking, actually, just to kind of be sober for a moment, is really how little consideration of the government's other priorities appeared to be factored into um, uh, the, the pandemic provision. So um, modern slavery, some of the reasons that some of these um, th- these uh, contracts and the the, pro- the products that have come through have, have been deemed unusable. It's not just because of safety, so ex- they pass their expiry date or they don't meet NHS standards. It's also because um, some of them, they, they do believe that there's modern slavery in the supply chain. So there was no basic yeah, checks nothing. on the fact that you've got two conflicting government priorities. So the government, this government has been really vocal over modern slavery, and yet there it is, throwing millions of pounds to companies directly, you know, mm. buying from organisations potentially involved in modern slavery. So, look, I think it's really important to say that it's easy to forget in 2022 that, or at the end of 2022, that we knew so little about all of this at the beginning of the pandemic, and the government did have to react really quickly um, because it was so underprepared, so that's you know an issue in its own right. <laughs> but it's not enough. That's not enough. That's not a, enough of an excuse to offset the lack of oversight of all of this. The yeah. panic, which is clearly visible in this rich list, it, it just shows such an incompetence that we should all be staggered. And so much money, just yeah. so, so much, such money. sums Billions. involved, yeah. stupendous. Uh, I, and the other thing that bubbles underneath is the sort of the acceptable 
immorality of capitalism, I guess. I read, I will read you a sentence. So it says, the couple scrambled to order consignments of PPE after receiving a tip-off about a deadly virus in China in late 2019. Then they waited. Oh, God. And, and I just think, Gosh. in what sort of world is it okay to sort of corner these essential... So, I mean... 70 years ago, we'd be calling that war profiteering, wouldn't yeah. we? we? Yeah, it's SPIV behavior. It is, it is, isn't it? Oh, there's a deadly virus. Let's just Wanna buy, buy shedloads <laughs> yeah. of stuff that we can then flog to our national health yeah. service that's already struggling so I can buy a house with two pools and a villa in... You know, in the Caribbean. I mean, what's Actually, really surprising? Having I'm... said that, I totally would do that. <laughs> you did lose me I, at the villa like, yeah, in the Caribbean. The, I was yeah, just like, no, fuck it. If that's what it takes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. is a guy who grew up on Mykonos with a villa in the Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, but this is it's a good point about if you look at some of these accounts, the speed at which some of these individuals and directors who were profiteering from this squirreled away that money to their children, to other business offshoots and so on, mm. clearly aware that this money had come very fast and yeah. there would be questions to answer later. It's quite visible that there, those discussions were happening, like we need to get this off the business account. And yet uh, it seems that, you know... Uh, for all the crazy stuff that's, that's, it's not even revealed, it's collated, isn't it? This stuff has been out there before. It's yeah. been in private eye. And Gabriel Pogren does yeah. a great job of doing what real good journalism is, which is putting stuff together in a way that makes sense. But for all of that, is anything happening to deal with this? Is any money being clawed back? It seems like it's all been piled, quite rightly, on Michelle Moan. Yeah. Not an attractive, you know, personality. Uh, but is anything happening? Well, so in the the Moan situation, there is an NCA investigation yeah. ongoing, so we do have to be careful what we can say. Mm -hmm. um, the gov government does say it's going to recoup the monies from un unusual, unusable PPE in that case. And the Department of Health is itself trying to recoup money spent on, on, on large batches that were unusable by their own standards, particularly where they were guaranteed that they would meet their standards and then didn't, so they're in breach of contract. So there could, I mean, this is going to take a long time, mm. but there could be a significant payback. But yeah, in terms of there's kind of an overarching investigation, we need to hear more from government on what it's going to do to interrogate its own processes, I think. And, and also this. change the tax thing, because that's the other repeating theme throughout this list, that so-and-so company also, by the way, at exactly the same time, moved its offices to Jersey, to the Cayman Islands, mm. And that is something that the government as a procurer can absolutely do unilaterally. They can say, we will only award contracts to people who pay tax in this country. It's not even that fucking unreasonable. Yeah. Mm. Good not luck so. with that one. I just want to know, will there ever be political consequences of this, though? Or is it just going to get filed in, in one of two boxes? One is, oh, well, they were doing their best and it was all very busy. And the other is just another reason why the Conservatives are awful. Is any... Is any uh, well, I mean, so the, the, of course it's another reason why the Tories are awful and maybe it will contribute to the general election result in some way. I don't know, maybe, I hope, are people learning that process and red tape is boring but useful, you know? I love boring uh, things. Red, we love red tape. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's what it prevents. This is what bureaucracy is for. It stops this kind of disgusting, uh, yeah, profiteering and exploitation of difficult 
social circumstances. I want more red tape. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, let's send in the army to sort it all out. We hope you've been enjoying Strike Week. The RNT strike, the NHS strikes, the post office strike, border force on strike. Plus the sudden cold snap brought back memories of the winter of discontent in 1978. Just turn off the fire and play I Lost My Heart to a Starship Trooper for the full retro effect. As part of the government's response, 600 members of the armed forces are being trained to drive ambulances in the absence of regular staff. And they're being sent to border force checkpoints as they go on strike as well. Ian. Send in the army is the classic advice of the bloke in the pub. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. But British government... And the Telegraph. And the Telegraph, yes. Uh, Same thing. If you can tell the difference. Same thing. (laughs) But British British governments do like to send in the army. We saw it in the pandemic. They built and co-staffed the Nightingale hospitals, which admittedly went largely unused. They were very nearly used in the 2002 firefighters dispute. They've been used during floods. They replaced Olympic security staff in 2012 and G4S couldn't get its act together. Is sending in the armed forces effective or is it symbolic? Should we just let the army run everything? <laughs> um, well, I mean, the thing is, it, okay, sure, you sometimes do it, but they talk about doing it a hell of a lot more than you ever... I mean, you can tell by that list, right? I mean, you're, you're bringing stuff up that's like, you know, a couple of times a decade sort of thing. Mm. You know, I mean, ultimately, we probably mention it. I mean, I would say the Telegraph alone would suggest it at least eight times a month. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and the re- why do they do it? The reason is, I mean, first start, yes, it is a stock of labor that cannot strike okay so you can therefore if you're the state you know direct it in various ways for people that can strike and do but more importantly than that is that symbolic element it's that sense of um it sounds tough and it sounds simple and that's a very attractive proposition for politicians they like shit that sounds simple and they like stuff that sounds tough i mean look, look at pmqs today pmqs is now just starmer and Sunak shouting at each other about who's tougher. It's basically turned into the most playground nonsense, <laughs> macho nonsense you could possibly imagine. And the trouble with what they're facing is that it isn't simple at all. Their argument is essentially that we cannot pay these people more because it leads to more inflation. Now, that would be true if you just start borrowing without any change in interest rates and direct it you know, in- entirely towards mm. wages because you're increasing demand. However, that is not the only option that is available to them. You can increase interest rates to reflect the borrowing, or, and this is the much better solution and the more likely one, you can increase taxes to try and get demand down at the same time as paying people more money. But that debate is a debate that no one wants to fucking have. And it's not just the Tories that don't want to have it. Labour doesn't want to have that conversation either, because we know the truth is Labour will talk about non-doms all they like. You cannot fix these problems with just non-doms. It's going to involve, uh, yes, people like us, people that you know, that read newspapers are going to pay a bit more money if that's the solution that we take. So that's the adult conversation that you can have. The childish conversation is just send in the fucking army. And now I guess which one that they want to have. Well, it's much more exciting to have a bunch of strapping lads driving an army. (laughs) I'll say. Brewing up a cup of tea. (laughs) 
<laughs> lifting your gran over the threshold, maybe lifting Alex over the threshold if he sprains his ankle. Who knows? What Much I more. really hate about this, though, is you're right. I really hate the infantilization of it. We yeah. are ready for that conversation. Mm-hmm. The people who buy the newspapers, they're ready for it. Um, you know, I've been interviewing people this week who've left Britain post Brexit and particularly post pandemic, facing cost of living. And nearly all of them, wherever they've settled, you know, some in Sweden, one in Austria, someone in Australia. They're all saying, I pay more tax now, but I'm so much happier because I, what I get back for it is quality, reliable mm-hmm. public services. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the flip side, right? That you can, you can just say, right, we're going to be tough on these guys. We're not going to make any negotiations. We're not, going to, we're not going to make any compromises. But there is an effect that is more than just the effect on the workers themselves, and that's that your public services are going to degrade, mm-hmm. okay? And people are going to be afraid about using them, especially on health but across the board. Yeah. And that has an impact on your political survival if you're the government. So even if they want to be self-interested about it, it's about time they started having an adult conversation rather than the juvenile one that we've been treated to over the last couple of weeks. I sort of quite like the idea of the British public for a while having all the public services provided by the army, you know, rough and ready, <laughs> just a cot in a cold room and a cup of tea in a, in a metal mug made by some lad <laughs> on 18 grand a year or whatever, like a private on these days. You know, I fucking love it. Not a fan- oh, I suppose there will be a certain kind of dad's army cosplay element they'd like, wouldn't they? The Bridget and Francois would be queuing round the corner. They'd be breaking their own arms to <laughs> yeah. be treated but then, but then to their day, Spartan conditions. <laughs> but one day, you know, their mum's going to have a stroke and a squaddy's going to come through the front from an ambulance and be like, can I help? And you're like, well, probably not, mate, because this isn't your fucking training. He's going to say, she's a goner, Gov, I'm going to have to leave her. I'm sorry, you're slowing the squad down. That's what's going to happen, and there'll be a tearful moment. She's Possibly. dead. Wait, yeah. leave. Her. I feel Andrew's gone quite deep. He's gone into quite this. dark. I've, like, yeah, I've read a lot dark. of Battle Pack Picture Weekly in my time. I'm really. enjoying it. I, I, no, I'm, I'm not really in favour of these. So, I mean, Alex, I mean, you, you, you pointed out in our live show last week that you know military staff can't go on strike force. But I mean, you know, there is an argument that uh, you know doctors and nurses are also completely essential, and that they shouldn't be allowed to strike either and that there is, you know, there are moves afoot for this. Does the country have sufficient sympathy with that very draconian move to simply take the right to strike away from essential medical staff? I mean, you could make that argument about most public services, actually. If you dig into it, most of them affect an area that could be either impinged on security or safety or, you know, you you can make that argument certainly about border force, you know. But at the same time, the fact that the army cannot um, take industrial action, actually, the army cannot even unionize, even oh. that is illegal, um, is a remnant of a sort of quite antiquated sense of duty and of what the army is for, and also the, the military covenant. The military covenant is that in exchange for you doing all this stuff, yeah. For us, and putting your life on the line, we're really going to look after you. Mm. And the state, I'm sorry, is not looking. No, after we haven't fulfilled it for years. It's, you know, yeah. the military. In any way, you dig into any statistics on rough sleeping, mm. and you will get a very accurate idea of how this country treats former military personnel. Sure, the army shouldn't be allowed to strike when in a military operation, but in peacetime at home, when they're unhappy with their salary, I don't see why not. The Dutch army can strike and has done so. The police is unionized, has a police federation. Why not the army? Hannah, um, Oliver Dowden, 
has been landed with the unofficial role of strikes minister, trying to corral ministers in transport, defence, health and home together. Uh, before this, he was referred to as the undertaker by David Cameron. <laughs> um, <laughs> does uh, Oliver Dowden have what it takes to run a national crisis like the one I we're mean, entering? It's, let's all remember that the last we heard of Dowden was his uh, very public defence of Gavin Williamson. So, well, if he can do that, he can do anything. <laughs> do I? Yeah, right. Um, I'm not sure he's the right man. I don't think anybody is. This is all too little, too late now. Mm. They have chosen to ignore how serious this was becoming for a long time, and now they think one one member of the cabinet can just suddenly fix it. I mean, it's that's laughable. And if you think about the amount of public support now for, I mean, I think I, I'm starting to believe there genuinely could be a general strike. Um, well, it has been described as kind of a general strike kind of coalescing. It, right, sort of exactly. But I think there could be an organised one now because we're getting to the point where public support is at a level across all of these industries that it's imaginable for the first time in my life. Yeah. And well, I mean, we're constantly told about the comparison with the winter of discontent. And I'm just about old enough to remember the last one when the unions were not popular at all. And yet the latest polls out, it's a Savanta Comrades uh, poll. And it, sends, it suggests that since the strikes began, um, 61% of people backed them in October and 32% opposed them before the strikes began. And since the, uh, since the strikes began, support has collapsed to only 60% in favour, <laughs> 1% yeah. drop and 35% again. So the government's banking on public support eroding and it doesn't seem to be... No, it's not. It's not. And the reason is, I think, is because people are experiencing all of the reasons that public sector workers are striking in their own lives. So they are struggling to access mm. decent health care. They're feeling their own wages pinched. They're paying more on their mortgages or their rent. They are struggling with the cost of living. They may have seen a small increase in their own salary if they work for a private sector organisation. Um, so they're thinking, yeah, well, why isn't a nurse getting a rise when I am? Yeah, I, I, I just do sales in some small crap firm. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, why are nurses not getting what they deserve? So, yeah, I think they're wrong. I think they're absolutely wrong. Um, and I don't think Oliver Dowden's going to achieve very much with that level of support. I, I hope that, and I believe that the unions know strength of their, their position now. And that's why we're seeing, you know, as you describe it, this new winter of discontent. Well, we've also seen previous strikes end in some form of uh, either climb down on negotiation, but previous sort of major national strikes have involved governments that contain rational thinkers. And we have a government that is still, maybe it's not quite as bad as it was five months ago, but it's still quite full of nutters. Ian, do you think that there is a negotiating gene anywhere in this government or they think that, that the toughing it out is the purpose? He's, he's getting to, Sunak's getting to the point where he can't back down now. And, and it wasn't this bad a few weeks ago. Now they're talking up. I mean, and they seem to be trying to use it as a negotiation strategy with unions, the legislation they're going to pass in order to, you know, block nurses, block doctors from doing this. In fact, every day they, they big it up a little bit more and go, oh, here's another group we're going to prevent from going on strike. So their entire direction of travel is towards being unable to move and having no flexibility in their posture. And I think that's a bit of a shame because they weren't, they weren't talking this way a few weeks back, actually. They made a positive decision, I think, it seems mm -hmm, yeah. to be, mm -hmm. about two weeks ago. And it had something to do with the sequence of the strike, the strikes and the sequence of negotiations, because, because of that sequence, it was actually rail stuff that were about to settle on a deal. And if that had happened first then the government would have been fucked when it comes to nurses yeah. and teachers yeah. and border stuff because they'd be able to point to 
seven and a half or eight percent or whatever. And so at that point, they made a conscious decision to put in a reckon amendment to do with driver only trains that they knew the unions wouldn't accept. Then the next thing that happens was that they did the same basically to nurses. So apparently the meeting uh, the nurses, the Royal College of Nurses had with the Secretary of Health, uh, Stephen Barclay, was disastrous. I mean, it actually took things backwards mm. because there was active dislike and sort of, you know, goading of each other going on. So imagine that you're them, right? You have these these political blockages, whichever way you look. Like on the one, it's, are we going to borrow more to do this and therefore have to put up interest rates even higher? Now, after what happened to trust and talking about mortgages and talking about people who owe debt, that just feels like an avenue that's just blocked off for you. When you start talking about taxation, having to put taxation up higher and yeah, yeah. to pay for it, then you start looking at what's going on in the parliamentary party, the way they responded even towards their supposedly, you know, hypothecated tax for social care, which is, of course, is a bunch of illiterate bullshit. But nevertheless, that's true. Mm. They tried to sell it. That pretty much helped to trigger the end of Boris Johnson, let alone, you know, any yeah. further. So in that scenario, you go, okay, fine. So if we can't do those things, we've got the strikes. And the strikes at least, and the Tories still have hope here, can damage Labour. Like if you look at the way that Labour acts, I mean, Labour wants to get good political capital mm. out of it, but you can tell that they yeah, get nervous around yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. can tell because th there is the potential for the yeah. counterattack on, you know, they're your paymasters and blah, 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 blah. So if there's an avenue, if you're just thinking purely politically, where's the avenue I'm most likely to go down? The strikes is the best out of the options of borrow more or higher taxes. And yet the support among the public is surprisingly solid. The, surprisingly the, solid. The, and the, that's why it makes no sense yeah. that Labour, you know, haven't become... Yeah. more bold in their own position on this. So my question is, has the Conservative Party succeeded where generations of the Labour left have failed and radicalised the British public <laughs> in favour of unions? Have they done that? Well, I mean, they, they might have because of the sheer numbers involved. Because, I mean, if you just sit down and add up, mm. you know, the bus drivers and the, mm. the rail staff and the civil servants and the teachers and the uh, nice. NHS stuff. I mean, that's a lot of fucking people. There's going to be very few families up and down the country who don't include someone who works in those as a bin man, as a barrister, as a, you know. Hmm. And so there's going to be a well of sympathy that's not just intellectually based, but is emotionally based in every single family up and down the country. Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. Remember, listeners, you can put your question to the panel when you back us on Patreon. This time, it's old school backer Reedoothy, who says, Hello, team. Nadalig Hlawen. I hope I said that right. Does the panel believe it is a sign of strength or weakness that Starmer is refusing to acknowledge the Brexit disaster? And how do they think his stance will play out in 2023? I get that we have to get behind Labour. The Labour leader of Wales, however, has fully acknowledged the failure of Brexit. Uh, to me, the braver stance would be to be honest, especially when polls show the public is in agreement. Hannah, uh, you never get to talk about Brexit. So what do you think? I mean, is he is he is it a sign of strength or weakness on Starmer's part? Uh, it's, that, it's difficult. I can see why... He's nervous. It's a bit like the, the, the strike thing. It's an easy um, win for the Tories to paint Labour as this kind of metropolitan elite mm -hmm. uh, voice. Even if he said the most nuanced thing about it, it would create the headlines that they don't want. Yeah. However, um, we are, I think, reaching a tipping point at which people are starting... I, we talked about trade earlier. Mm -hmm. People are starting to understand the the fact that it was such a monumental cock-up um, and that all the promises they were made were 
you know, made of dust. Mm. So it would be a bold move to be stronger. I'd like to see it. I don't think it's likely to happen. Ian? I mean, as I said before, I think that there's more uh, space in Labour's commentary than we are currently recognising when they talk about agriculture and the, the manner in which that can work as a beachhead for broader regulatory alignment and probably will do given the kind of the sort of the complete dominance that the concept of growth will have on a future Labour government, assuming they get in in 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, rhetoric would suggest that there's going to be a more intimate relationship there on the labor than is currently being recognized yeah i i'm my sense is that it's not that they don't want to talk about brexit in any terms or europe in any terms it's that they don't want it to be an electoral issue yeah, next yeah. time exactly. at all which yeah. is why they just want to avoid talking about it at all i don't think that reveals anything about their real thoughts on the subject. Mm. They just want the next election to not contain Europe as an issue. Yeah. Is there some kind of evidential basis that you think that Keir Starmer saying one thing during an election campaign and doing another <laughs> afterwards might be a viable outcome? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Keir Starmer <laughs> um, and also politics for the last <laughs> 3,000 years. <laughs> Finally, the proportion of working-class actors, musicians and writers has gone down by half since the 1970s, according to a new study in the journal Sociology. Of people in the arts born between 1953 and 1962, just over 16% came from working-class background. Now the figure is just 7.9%. Pop music, for instance, used to give us oiks like The Who, Joy Division, Happy Mondays, Slade and Suede. Now we get Mumford & Sons, Coldplay and Florence Welsh. Are we creating a well-heeled monoculture in the world of culture? Uh, to tackle this happily, we've got, I think, a majority of graduates from Scumbag Comprehensive around the table, so that's good. <laughs> Yay! Yay! Go Scumbag. Hannah, um, a survey found that people whose parents had had a working-class occupation accounted for about 37% of creative workers in 1981, but by 2011, it was only about 21%. That's like 11 years ago. Uh, why is this happening? Can I start by just saying, I don't think suede oiks. I don't think that's the right... They I are jumped up oiks, definitely. They're they? from quite a poor background suede, yeah? Oh, yeah. Genuine poverty. Right. Trouble, in your council I, I home, to... you broke all your bones, you know. <laughs> when you try and challenge Andrew or Dorian on this stuff, what's annoying is they're like, well, on the seventh occasion that I interviewed. <laughs> That's yeah. true, yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, I should fine. not have got so involved they, in this. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, back to the question. So the interesting thing about this that's been missed in some of the kind of discussion and reporting around it is that actually the percentage has shrunk, but it's shrunk by the same amount as the percentage of people who identify in you know these various polls as working class mm. so it's the same percentage of the working of class people people yeah. yes um and obviously we've seen the middle class expand because of higher education participation and so on and this is something we should be pleased about obviously i think there's an there's an interesting question about so what is it that the arts and this might sound uh like an odd question to ask what is it the arts are doing right? Because if you look at other sectors, politics, media, it's shrunk at a massively faster rate. Right. In, so in my industry, in the media, 
you used to have brilliant routes in through local papers, mm-hmm. people starting at 16 mm-hmm. straight out of school, rising up to be editors, getting onto Fleet Street and so on. There's nobody like that now. You have to go through a ton of expensive courses. It's it, Really, it's the democracy of media has, has disappeared. Mm, yeah, and that, you, you and have it, a lot of expensive courses and then you have to be able to effectively live with your mum and dad in London. And work for free for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't do that. I came from a let's be honest, completely middle-class background, but had no relationship in the media, did not come uh, from London. And I ended up having to work for almost 10 years in trade mags because I had to have a salary to pay my rent. You know, you can't just walk onto a national newspaper. Um, um, So the arts actually has a much higher proportion of working-class people within it. Um, it, We should still be troubled that it's so small. Mm. um, But I think we you don't know not only looking at the arts here it's a problem across all of the kind of creative or kind of you know desirable professions that people want to go into mm. ian what you know what does it mean if the culture both in front of and behind the camera is uh, coming from the better off end of society yeah i do think that's a problem i think when you look at you know certain people right so if you if you think of someone like ken loach or mike lee i mean we can have all sorts of problems with ken loach politically but mm-hmm. in terms of representation of uh, you know of this country i think it's extraordinary the degree of realism he brought stuff and they were almost always from sort of the upper elements of the working class or lower middle class whenever you read yeah. an interview it was always a thing of like my dad was a foreman it was like yeah there but but a foreman you know and that's what meant i can go to oxford and i think this all comes down to that sort of 70s process where you know when we had proper manufacturing and industry in this country what was important about it was the way that it served mobility you know so you could actually get you could actually be in a position where your kids would end up in oxford and yeah. once they're in oxford then they can become director so um, in that capacity, that's what we lost. Then when you, have a, when you have a sort of economy that's based on, you know, these guys over here are going to serve coffee and these guys over here are going to make 10 million quid a year drink, you know, while drinking the coffee, basically retail and finance, yeah. then that sense of mobility is lost. And I think that could be quite crucial to the manner in which we think about our arts. That's absolutely right. And, the, you know, it's one of the big reasons why it's discussing that there's no decent industrial strategy from mm-hmm. both, you know, Labour and uh, as, as an opposition party, but also from the government, because a massive change in the structure of our economy would be another chance at a second wave of, you know, uh, class mobility, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fear in the creative industries is that it, when, you when you have an absence of actual working class people, you get those stories being told by people who are not from that background. So you get kind of, you know, poor person cosplay and you get kind of, uh, you know. I mean, that's, but that's been a thing in this country for a very long time. I remember reading a a review by a, a famous critic called Komijareski, like in the early 20th century, more than 100 years ago, that complained of what it called British chocolate box realism, which insisted that, you know, the funny tart had to be northern and the maid had to be cockney Mm. and the farmer had to be um, from Yorkshire and everyone else was posh. Yeah, and it just peppered those things to give the the idea of variety. It was interesting a few years ago. Edward Kemp, who was then director at RADA, said something very interesting that I don't just train posh kids; I also train kids to be posh. And that, I think, is a really important thing. Where are those stories being told? You know, Mm. where are those series being commissioned? If all we demand and all we export 
are Downton Abbey, mm. then of course Dominic West and Tom Hiddleston and, and Damien Lewis, who all went to Eton, which happens to have a 400-seater <laughs> perfectly equipped theatre and does three productions a year and even sends a play to Edinburgh every year, of course mm. those are the people who are coming through because they are authentically not just what is supplied but what is demanded. Yeah. And no one ever thinks of what the demand side of yeah. it is and how do we stimulate the demand side for working-class stories, for music that is not refined in some way. How do we make these things accessible to everyone? Alex, you'll have to correct me here if I'm wrong. You know much more about this. My, my impression was that, that there was a domestic demand for working class stories in terms of sort of TV and, and film mm. but that internationally they found it very hard to sell Absolutely, absolutely Well, I, mean, I was sort of like rattling through my brain to try and think you know, stand out, uh, you know, actors from a working class background, Stephen Graham Kathy Burke, Christopher Eccleston Gary Ullman, none of these people is like 25 you know, Julie you know, Walters right. Yeah, you they're know. all of an older generation and you know, they're my heroes and my heroines but who's replacing them? I, you know, have we just lost that conveyor belt that could take somebody from a community theatre thing? Somebody like Stephen Graham, mm. who's amazing, mm -hmm. who can come from just a, being an ordinary guy who wants to have a go to being one of the kind of mainstay actors here in the UK and has broken out as well. You know, I think he's... he's but some... where are those youth programmes? I'd be really interested. I genuinely don't know. I'd be really interested to know what, who is going into the Everyman in Liverpool now where Stephen Graham came yeah. through. I mean, what's mm -hmm. the intake? Is it a bunch of, you know... Liverpool has had a huge wave of regeneration. Is it a yeah. bunch of middle-class kids? Well, it might, Probably. Or, it might or might not be, but I think Kemp's point is that they come out yeah. of that system very uniform. Mm. They don't wear their regional accent or their working-class back background on their sleeve because it's an active disadvantage in the industry yeah. in which they go into. And that's an issue. Well, the Guardian, which, which is where we spotted the story, um, they quoted Gary Oldman. He was speaking at the BFI. And he said, people say to me, why haven't you directed again? Uh, and it hasn't been for want of trying. They don't want another nil by mouth. That's the problem. They want four weddings and a funeral. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you've got somebody who can tell a proper story here about proper people that we'd all recognise. But no, actually, even here, even in this country, what people want is Richard Curtis, uh, you know, quality street chocolate box type stuff. Which is good. I mean, it's very, very good. It's just not the only thing you should be consuming. You know, you can't live your life on quality street. You can try. And, and also, <laughs> well, yeah, but also it's an issue of budgets, you know. And there are bodies, you know, the BFI, the Lottery Fund, the Arts Council that award these things. And my argument to them would be, don't give, you know, 200 million to the next four weddings and a funeral because that kind of sleeper hit actually will be a hit with 120 million. And then you can give 1 million each to 80 mm. micro projects, one of which will be an even bigger hit. Mm. And we know that because that's now the funding formula actively adopted by Netflix, by the big studios in Hollywood, by Amazon. You know, they will, f they will fund fewer massive projects and then put $1 million each yeah. into micro-projects. Well, um, I consume a lot of the streaming telly now and I, I find it hard to remember seeing the kind of series that retells the stories of Britain back to Britain, for instance, right? Mm. It's all very international. I know, I know what you mean.
And that's the end of the podcast. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Hannah. Thank you. Thank you to Alex. Thank you. And thank you to Ian Dunt. Thank you very much, sir. We'll be back next week with two special editions counting down the absolute worst moments of 2022. Perfect Christmas listening. Now stay tuned for the extra bit, the backers on Patreon, after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, our theme tune, and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads and lots more. Just search Oh God What Now Patreon and find out how. Hello and a big thanks from me to Ian Evans, Andres Groves, Matthew Darcy, Matt Hammond, Kate Killian, Vicky Dumbrell, John and Helen Holt. Hello and an early happy Christmas from me to Helen Williams, Peter Gray, James Griffin, Ben Price, John T. Eccles, Wendy Barker, Gavin Brown and Andy Neal. A big shout out from me to Hal Wilson, Simon Strachan, Old Mardy, Armo Garden, Lucy Rogers, Stephen Waddle, Adrian Fillar, and Michael Watt. And from me, it's hello and huge thanks to Yale Bradbury, Ewan Boyd, Richard Simpson, Chickle Chives, Douglas Philp, Basil, Diane Kingswood-Smith, and Patrick Walsh. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Andrew Harrison with Alex Andreu, Hannah Fern, and Ian Dunt. Audio production is from me, Robin Lieber, and the producers are Alex Reese with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, there's a cost of living crisis on, and if we're being honest, gift buying and card sending and even figuring out what you want is hard enough at Christmas. So we're going to talk about the agony of buying presents in an age where so many of the things that make life fun are intangible or, like pop music, basically free. And also, we're going to give present buying tips for two notoriously finicky and tricky family members. The open-minded teenage niece or nephew who needs their horizons expanding and the infamous recurring character on the podcast, your Brexity Uncle Ken. <laughs> so, right, do we like buying presents? Who likes buying presents? No. God, the faces are sinking around here. I you love hate... it. Oh, I Alex likes it. absolutely love it. What do you love about it, Alex? Are you, are you an early starter? Well, I'm an all-year goer. We know and this, but what about presents? With a final dash. That's and that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now in your life, without ads and a day early, then give yourself an early Christmas present and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. And you'll also get our exclusive weekly mini-cast, oh God, what else, every Monday morning. Alex and I need to work out what we're going to be talking about this week. Your support keeps us going, listeners. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.